You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. Episode 115, Text Adventures with Rob Sherwin. Hello, and welcome to episode 115 of You Don't Know Flack. This episode is all about text adventures, those old text-based games that required gamers to type in commands and use their imagination to convert the words on the screen into imaginary worlds. And they're not just old. Uh, In recent years, text adventures have become rebranded, I guess you could say, as interactive fiction, which many people, including myself and today's guest, continue to write. Episode 115 is definitely a first for You Don't Know Flack, Not only is it the second episode I've released this year, but it will also be the second one I've released this month. And uh, anyway, I'm working really hard at ramping back up to at least doing a monthly release, so eh, enjoy it while my enthusiasm lasts. One suggestion I've received a few times in the past is to have more guests on the show. And since I've been planning a show regarding text adventures for a while, the first name that came to mind was Rob Sherwin. Over the past ten years, Rob has written and released more than half a dozen works of interactive fiction, including last year's Crypto Zookeeper, which in 2012 won five Zizzy Awards for Best Game, Best Writing, Best Setting, Best Non-Player Character, and Best Individual Non-Player Character. Both Rob and I spent a good portion of our youth playing text adventures, so having him on the show was a no-brainer. This particular episode of You Don't Know Flack has actually been in the works for about two years, Back when I was first brainstorming topics for episodes of You Don't Know Flack, text adventures were right at the top of the list. And actually in 2010 I wrote a rough draft of this episode and put it in the queue. Then in the summer of 2011, Rob and I began talking and decided to try to record a two-man show. Now around that same time, uh, again this is the summer of 2011, Rob and I got together over Skype and spent about an hour talking about text adventures. So to give you an idea of how old this podcast is, at times throughout the recording, you'll hear Rob Sherman refer to his latest text adventure, Crypto Zookeeper, in the future tense. But Crypto Zookeeper was actually released about a year ago in May of 2011. So, uh, yeah, I kind of dropped the ball on this one. And to make matters even worse, last year I set up a dedicated podcasting machine. Now some of you know uh, in the fall my family and I moved into a new house And so recently, when I dug out that computer, it wouldn't even boot. So to recover the Skype conversation that Rob and I had recorded, I had to pull the hard drive out, connect it to my new machine, transfer the files over, uh, and then put it back into uh, the podcast format. So I'm not really 100% satisfied with the recording quality. That was the first time that I had actually ever used Skype and tried to record anything on it. So uh, it is what it is. And... I hope you're able to overlook the quality of the recording and focus on the content. And um, hopefully I'll be able to get better quality Skype recordings in the future, and uh, that'll let me have more guests on the show. Uh, So anyway, without further ado, I will bring Rob Sherwin onto the line, and we will begin this episode of You Don't Know Flack. So, uh, 
today on the podcast, I have with us Rob Sherwin. Hey, Rob, thank you very much. It's very, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Good. We, uh, we've, we've got our, we're Skyping. We're, we're yes. Skypers, Skype heads. <laughs> I don't know what the, I guess we're just, we're, ch- we're chatting. <laughs> um, and um, how about that opening monologue? I thought it was absolutely amazing. Wasn't it? Uh, I, I had pants on, but I took them off for it. That's how good it was. I don't have any on either. So, um, Outstanding. I'm surrounded with uh, Taco Bell wrappers and no pants. I look like a, like a junkie. Which <laughs> is <laughs> <laughs> like... Um, so, uh, uh, Rob Sherwin, as some of you know, is uh, an author of interactive fiction, several interactive fiction games. Rob, what all games have you um, released over the years? Um, yeah, I've done, I've done a few games over the years in Hugo and Inform and Tads. Um, uh, the last one, the last big release I did was a game called Necrotic Drift, and I'm working on one right now, which I hope to release any day, called Crypto Zookeeper. And um, are these all, I, I know the answer to this, but for our uh, audience's sake, I guess I should say that... Um, they're not all um, strictly text adventures like in the old school uh, sense with interactive fiction. Some of the languages now allow you to um, add some sort of uh, multimedia features in, in these games as well. Yeah, there's a, there's a few of them that have a graphical component to them. And I tried to get actors to play the parts of some of the characters. And that kind of it, it comes back to like what you are nostalgic about. Um, and what you played when you were growing up. And for me, I did play the Infocon games, which were, for the most part, straight text. But there were a lot of Magnetic Scrolls games as well, which um, all had graphics. So for me, when I went to go do them again as an adult, I was thinking back along the lines of, man, it would be awful nice to put in put in some pictures, um, humiliate friends by having them play <laughs> people, um, becoming... Uh, just, just very, very creepy towards women by constantly asking them to play as, 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 as people in the game too. So yeah, they, they do, a few of them do have pictures. Has it, it, it takes for it takes forever to get one of those done. So I think after getting done one that has pictures, I try to go back just to straight text. Just to, has anybody uh, regretted being in any of your games? I mean, as far as like the the pictures and stuff, or I, I know my um my my brother who played the main character in Fallacy of Dawn. Th- there was over. Uh, about a month, about a year and a half of him having to constantly wear the old man Murray shirt, which did not fit him very well. He hated that thing. And um, he would, well, you know how brothers are. Brothers, brothers, brothers will fight. And I, I just, he would, he would get, he hated it by the end, but I couldn't take a poke at him because I didn't want to get blood on that shirt. I kind of needed that. <laughs> so I think he's the only one. I think for the most part, everybody else, I'll ask them. For a, for a picture or something, I take their picture. It's in a game. Nobody actually plays these things, so it never really comes up. So <laughs> just so everybody knows, I have a standing offer to be an actor in one of uh, Rob Sherwin's games. That's, I'm that's ready. Right. I'm like a stand-in. Uh, you'll, you'll be the you'll be the main character. All right. Yeah, definitely. I, and with uh, Photoshop, you can make me uh, better looking. Yes. Um. There's there's a there's a guy in the one I'm working on right now who does not have a Hitler mustache in real life. But I thought, this game's taking place in the future. I think the, that mustache is going to come back. It's going to make a, you know, we'll see it again. So, yeah, I did use Photoshop to give him a, a toothbrush mustache, I suppose, is the, is the, is the, um, is, is the proper term. Um, and so, yeah, I've had to 
had to go through and manipulate him that way throughout the whole game. Well, um, one of the things, we kind of, uh, before we started, we wrote down a loose uh, outline of, of topics to talk about. And one of the things we put down was uh, our personal history with, with playing uh, text adventures. I guess I should uh, kind of, we should talk about what the difference is, or what, what your opinion uh, of the difference between text adventures and interactive fiction. I know that uh, with this uh, recent resurgence uh that I just recently found, I guess, I mean, over the, the past year or so, that interactive fiction is different than than text adventures. I kind of used the terms uh, interchangeably before, but what what do you see the, the difference between those two things? I mean, they're, they're similar, but I guess there's yeah. some differences. I just, um, yeah, I think for me, um, if I think that I'll immediately get made fun of by using the word text adventures, I'll, I'll probably use the word <laughs> interactive fiction instead. I don't know. To me, it's, I, I, to me, it's all kind of the same way to describe it. Yeah, I just um, I, I yeah. thought that uh, for me, you know, text adventure. I don't know. I guess it's because that was a term I grew up with, but it it reminds me more of like uh, the two word commands. You know, like get lamp, like as we'll be talking about later, or you know, go west. Those those type of things, and and the adventure part was because every game was basically you know uh, there was a it was an adventure like you know you had to find your way through a forest or to do this or do that. But there was a set start and and end. Whereas um, with a lot of the games that have been released over the last ten years, that and with this term interactive fiction, the the storyline seemed to be a lot deeper and a lot more involved and, and better uh, more focus on the, the writing or the storytelling i guess than some of the older games yeah i would agree with you i think that's a great way to put it i um yeah i i, I think you're right so yeah so when um what what's your history with text adventures like when did you start playing the text adventures i didn't really start till um till we got a, a pc junior as a family like I think you you were, uh, did you start out? You started on a TRS. Yeah, game, yeah. Right? Is that? Mm-hmm, yeah. So yeah, you were probably playing long before, long before I was. Well, um, I started playing text adventures more or less out of uh, necessity. I mean, that was oh, okay. the right. the base model came with 4K of RAM, and it could be expanded up to 48K. Um, the uh, the actual output. Or you know, uh, we had a TRSA Model Three, so it had the the built-in monitor, and okay. uh, so for text, in the normal text mode, it was 32 characters wide by 16 lines tall, and in the graphic mode, it, it, the resolution was 128 by 48. So um, any, I mean, graphical type games. I mean, I thought of pixels like pixels back then were like. A spacebar cursor, like the full size one now. You know, I mean, like a giant block. Um, and yes. and even more common were games that were created, like with ASCII characters. Uh, yeah. Like I remember a racing game where, uh, you know, your car was just the number eight, <laughs> with a colon on each side to represent the tires, and then the road was made out of, um, you know, forward slashes and back slashes. So there were a lot of games like that that just used um, ASCII characters. So when um text adventures hit the home market it was like i mean the graphics you know what one thing that people have always said about text adventures and and 
really, I mean, about reading is that the graphics in your head are better than anything, you know, you could do on a computer. And back then it was really true. I mean, because, (laughs) you know, with just a paragraph, you could say, uh, you know, there's a haunted house in front of you, et cetera, and were something that you could never seriously depict with the, you know, the available computing power or whatever that you had. Yeah. Did you, did you back, so back in the day, like, were you trading wares on the TRS-80 as well? Or did that, like, was that more, it wasn't until you got to the Apple in 64 where you were, like, old enough to, like, do you ever remember trading Infocom, or not Infocom, like, Scott Adams games on the? You know, the, I think most of the stuff we bought at that time, well, at, at the very beginning uh, with the TRS-80, the games were so inexpensive. I mean, you could go to Radio Shack and, um, you know, even a lot of the games that they sold, there wasn't even any packaging. It would just be like a cassette tape in a Ziploc oh. bag, you know, with a, with a label <laughs> on it that would say such and such adventure. And it would be $2 or $3 or something, you know, um, and, or you could buy these little, like, uh, I don't know what you would call it, like a, a miscellaneous tape that might have multiple games on it, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and, and I mean, in the, the early days, the TRS-80 days, a lot of programs, you know, you would type in from a magazine or whatever and then save it on your own cassette. So there wasn't, uh, okay. we, we didn't, with our TRS-80, and we only had it for a couple of years, uh, but we didn't have a disk drive. We only had a cassette tape drive, so I don't think there was a big cassette wear scene. <laughs> not, <laughs> not that I, <laughs> I was any part of. Um, but, yeah, once you got to the... Um, uh, we went from that to the Apple and then, uh, and then I kind of split off to the Commodore before, um, uh, my dad moved from the Apple to the PC. So there was a time where we had an Apple, a Commodore and a PC all in our house at the same time. But, um, but you know, we also had modems and things like that. So, you know, by that time, yeah, uh, people were trading stuff. And, and I think part of why, I don't know, like, I know a lot of people, think back to like the classic text adventures like infocom and stuff like that um but i think i was just a little young maybe for that scene Mm -hmm. uh because i mean you know when i was in commodore stuff i mean starting off like 11 12 years old i would have much rather played pac-man or or donkey kong or something like that than you know (laughs) read (laughs) <laughs> so reading wasn't going to get you anywhere so nah, yeah it was, yeah right who needs it stupid <laughs> words and um so yeah I, I don't know i but then uh it was interesting you talked about magnetic scrolls because i remember those games having a huge impact uh there was uh what, the pawn wasn't that yes. one of their first big ones and then there was a I sequel think, yeah. to that yeah guild of thieves was their sequel yeah, yeah 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 and um uh and they did that weird it was like a kind of like a well they weren't the first people to do it but but they had such amazing graphics but they would do that split screen where it would show graphics at the top and then a certain amount of text at the bottom right yeah Yeah, that was like i don't know about you but i always thought that was extremely frustrating to try to to try to play it in that way because the resolutions of the monitors that we had simply weren't big enough to give you enough space to right yeah um, like you only got a yeah. few lines of text or something or right yeah yeah so you would go and like like i found myself playing them with the graphics taking up most of the screen um initially but i would see all the pictures and then sort of like go back when um 
when I would start over or get killed or something mm. and play with the graphics not taking up so much room just so I could read uh, a little bit better and you know have more text on the screen to, to figure out what was going on. Right, and, and um, I guess one thing that a lot of people don't think about now is that there was such a, uh, like there was loading times involved in that. So, you know, yeah. if you were trying to play a game, then it would sit there and it might take, 10 or 20 seconds you know before that picture would pop up right so um it once you'd once you'd seen the picture it wasn't that big of a deal right. you know what i mean <laughs> i mean you saw it once and it was cool but then after that you just wanted right. to play the game yeah exactly yeah yeah so what what um other text adventures like from that era <laughs> i mean were there ones that that stand out to you or um i don't know made, made an impact um, well, for the for the games that we played, that and when I say we, I just just me, my my brother and I, mm-hmm. and nobody else in the family, to this day, uh, are big fans. But we, um, like we would have some that were that you would they were made in basic, or you could see that obviously somebody typed them in from a magazine. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because there were there was nothing else to do when we were growing up, so a horrible game would get a lot of play <laughs> because there wasn't anything like we weren't going to go outside so there was nothing else to, to to really do i remember there was one game it was called alien it was written in, it was written in basic but um when i would look at the source code to it the basic code did a lot of go subs which mm-hmm. i now know means launch a sub subroutine but back then it was pretty much machine language as far as i was concerned it was like oh i'm not following this along uh, and and it was this horrible game that you could get killed just by walking into rooms. They're loaded with spelling errors. But uh, my brother and I would hot seat that. And we would, we would play it for a bit, get stuck, and um, the other one would take over. And um, that's, that's the one that I, that I remember best. Mm-hmm. And, um, so like, and then, of course, you've got, you don't want the nostalgia for a cruddy game that you played. 25 years ago, but, but you get it anyway, and so sometimes, <laughs> you know, not at the job that I have now, but at previous jobs, when there's nothing to do, you're like, man, you know what I had to do? I had to re-implement that, that, that basic game, and Hugo. But I still don't really understand basic uh, <laughs> go-subs. Man, so Those wacky go-subs. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> That's going to be tough, like, when they look through my uh, internet logs at work. Kinda, so, so why are you looking for go-subs, basic? <laughs> It's gonna be, yeah. I remember um, we uh, we my the, our neighbors across the street also had a Commodore, and they were never like into um, the wares or anything like that. You know, I mean, in fact, for a long, they were one of the first people I saw that had a Commodore sixty four, and you know, you could uh, just at a basic screen, you could use uh, change colors and draw the graphics and things. You know, and yeah. so a lot. I mean, when I used to go over there in the early days they would just draw these huge pictures but not in a way that they could be saved or anything <laughs> i mean they would just do like you know weird like non-computer type things you know but um the uh, uh the brother across there there were four brothers and one was uh, the same the youngest one was the same age as me and then each one was older 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 you know and um we had got a copy of the farmer's daughter which i don't know if you've ever <laughs> No, I, I haven't heard of that one. Yeah, in fact, like, when we were talking about the kind of games um, beforehand, I'm like, you, you had a list of games that I'd never heard of, so please tell me about this Farmer's Daughter. <laughs> Farmer's Daughter was um, 
just this you know you know the the old uh, stereotype the joke of like the traveling salesman you know uh who goes to the farmhouse and uh you know ends up trying to to hook up with the farmer's daughter and that was the entire game that was that was the point of the whole game uh, but uh as far as like looking back now as far as text adventures um i mean it was it was actually the mechanics of the game were pretty good i mean you had to really you know think through but you know, at the time, this was long before, you know, long, long, long before the internet or anything like where you could just find a walkthrough or anything like that, you know. So we would just <laughs> try over and over to score with, <laughs> with the farmer's daughter, you know. Um, but uh, and it, it was a Commodore text adventure. And now I guess it's, um, uh, if you if you look it up, it says, like in the when you load it up, it says also coming soon from this company a second game, and I've looked and I can't find the second game. So I think it was just a a one. <laughs> Farmer's Daughter didn't sell that sell enough for a, a sec for the sequel. <laughs> There's no sequel to Farmer's Daughter. It was that was going to be tough. Yeah, when they all got brought into the conference room after <laughs> after it launched a few months later, and they had to look at the figures, and they're like, "Yeah, sorry guys, right? We're going to have to let you all go." And yeah, they they're hoping to get. Um, onto the uh, soft porn three uh, development team <laughs> right. or something, but yeah, and it, it's you been know, a very awkward meeting. And of course, like back then, you know, where you had um, the uh, oh Custer's Revenge for the Atari twenty six hundred <laughs> or Farmer's Daughter, those type of games, like you could launch that with a serious face, you know, like, <laughs> well, what's your idea? You know, well, <laughs> it's a game about trying to have sex with a underage farmer's daughter. Yeah, <laughs> you know, to send that to marketing. And now, I, yeah, I guess yeah. by the time, maybe by the time. Uh, the second game, uh, the winds have changed. <laughs> I do love the idea that yeah, that if somebody worked on a on a on a text game, uh, sex game that didn't work, and he was like, you know, screw this. I, I they're doing the graphics in the Atari. The only input is the paddle. Exactly. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and then yeah. Uh, one I remember playing several times was uh, Rambo. Okay. But uh, since I was so young. I hadn't seen the movie yet, and so a lot of the things that you were supposed to do in the game uh, were like reenactments of scenes from the movie. So I I remember, and this is something, and I, I kind of want to talk about this a little bit later on about your um, maybe your philosophy as far as like writing games and and um, uh, specifically when it comes to like killing players <laughs> or you know like like. Uh, and the reason I bring that up in Rambo, uh, the game starts and you have parachuted uh, down into a field. And, you know, you hear guys coming and you have your gun. And so you have about three moves to perform. And then I would get killed. It was like the, the enemy shows up, they knew where you were, and they killed you. And so I would just play the game over and over, but I never got more than four moves into it, you know. And so after... A couple of years, I got tired of that, you know, the same four moves or whatever. But I have since found a walkthrough that lists, you know, all the commands to beat the game. And apparently in that opening scene, there's a hollow log and you're supposed to remove your parachute and stuff it in the hollow log. Mm, and the parachute okay. is what was giving away your location. But, you know, at the time it didn't seem like and maybe that I don't even think that happened in a movie, you know, but <laughs> <laughs> now that I think about it. But uh you know, it was like, and, and to be honest with you, and I, I've had this this conversation before, but when it once we got seriously into like downloading games and stuff, if a game stunk or wasn't that much fun, I just moved on. 
you know, because there were so many games coming in. I mean, a single disc, you might have five or ten games on it, you know? So, you know, you get killed four moves into Rambo after <laughs> 10 or 15 minutes. I'm done with Rambo, you know? It's time to move on to something else. Um, yeah, again, the Viet Cong is going to win uh, the war again in Rambo, just like they did in, in real life. <laughs> exactly. <the> next game. <laughs> going to move Sorry on. Sorry about that slide. But yeah. No, we had that. I had the same thing with uh, the game Borrowed Time, which uh, was a graphical text game. It came out, I think, around. I think it used the same. I don't want to say it used the same engine as Task Times in Tone Town, mm -hmm. because I think it was just like. Um, it, it, they, were, they, they looked a lot alike. It was the same sort of thing. You could play for a bit, um, but. You would get killed very, very quickly because you had so many enemies. And um, I, I kind of knew on some level that if I solved, kept solving the mysteries and solving the puzzles, I'd be able to survive longer. But I, it was just nice being able to walk around the virtual borrowed time world. Yeah, so, yeah. So, but I would get killed. So, <laughs> um, and again, there was nothing else to play. So it would just get loaded up again and again and again. Well, and I, I took a look at that game as as an adult a few years ago and I'm like oh actually this kind of sucks this is, <laughs> this is not that great I you know, and I didn't play it that much but I did play uh, Task Times in Tone Town which oh, you okay. mentioned and um, I you know I kind of have that same memory like I don't remember ever beating it or ever like even getting very far but it was just being submerged in that world especially because that was like you know kind of the, the it was like the 80s version of what we thought the future would be like. You know, like we would all have purple hair and giant sun. It was like the um, Back to the yes. Future future, yes. you know, with the um, uh, we would all have the Vigimatics on the back of our car <laughs> and puffy clothes. All things, all trends I plan on bringing back <laughs> this year, 2011. Nice. The year of purple hair, right. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Some of those games um, I, I don't know how you did playing the old text adventures because I do have a lot of memories of playing a lot of them, but I don't have a lot of memories of beating a lot of them. Right. I think um, yeah, one of the Infocom guys in GetLamp said uh, something to the effect of they, they would get mail from people who said how much they love Zork, but they never actually went into the white building. So I think it wasn't that rare for people just to <laughs> wander around these things, take in the environment and enjoy it and have, you know, leave 90% of the game unplayed. Right. It's, it's a, it's, it's weird like that, though, because you would never just, I don't know, you wouldn't restart the first level of Battletoads over and over and over again and say, wow, what a great game. This is awesome. I can't get enough. There's know, something about text adventures where you're not seeing everything. It's it probably, just, probably not the case today, but it, um, but 25 years ago, if you didn't see everything, that that's that did not necessarily mean that you thought the game sucked. Yeah. It's kind of weird. I think a lot of games, well, especially with um, the current generation of uh, gaming consoles, has put... Uh, such this huge well i and combined i should say with playing online but this whole uh the trophy system or uh award system you know things like that where where you uh get achievements or whatever and so that kind of pushes people into well i, I have to have you know a uh, hundred percent of this game i have to do every single part where back then it was just kind of it was almost like a i don't want to say a novelty but uh i don't know it's hard to explain but but in something like, uh, oh, in Donkey Kong, let's say, mm -hmm. um, if you were coding a clone of Donkey Kong, you would have to figure in, you know, which way the barrels go. You would have to, to program in, you know, what happened, like the arc maybe of, of Mario's jump and things like that. But you would never have to 
program in uh, what happens if Mario calls a timeout and decides to go to the coffee shop? And to, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, that's not possible. And it, the game is so, uh, I mean, it's like when you look at the game, you see there's no way to break out of you're on that level and your goal is to get from point A to point B. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, in a text adventure, when you're just plopped into this world, it's almost like a virtual reality type thing where part of the enjoyment is just exploring the world is not necessarily getting from from point a to point b that's a weird point i don't know if that if that makes sense but uh no it totally does i know what a lot of people like about that infocom game a mind forever voyaging is that you got some you're given some tasks to do in the beginning of the game but it's your tasks are all along the lines of go experience what we think the world is going to look like 20 years into the future and then 40 mm-hmm. so it was somewhat puzzleless and a lot of the pleasure that you got from the game was was walking around, hanging out, and um, and seeing things, uh, and interacting with with that world. So yeah, no, I, I'm I'm totally yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, Alter Ego. I don't know if you ever played that. It's not really a text adventure, I guess, but um, yes. it, yeah. it, it was similar in that that type of um, you know where you made these choices and then you kind of like built a character. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I mean, uh-huh. it could be you. And the first time everybody plays it, I think they play themselves. You know, they <laughs> right. choose what they would choose, and then they live through. And then, you know, subsequent playthroughs, you, you kind of, uh, you know, maybe get a little bit more daring with your choices or whatever. But it was kind of a similar, similar idea, I guess. Yeah. You know what? There was, um, when I was in, when I went to Seattle PAX last year, um, there was... There was a, a, a guy there, and I apologize for not remembering his name, but he brought Alter Ego to the iPhone. Um, I don't want to say that he ported it over, because I can't remember off the top of my head if he added more scenarios and choices and stuff. But, yeah, that's um, available and, and out there on a, on a modern system as well. Yeah, Alter Ego is such a great game. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Different than anything else I can ever remember, like, like unique in how it's set up and how you pick uh, what you want to do. And um, the sense of loss you get when you mess up and die, and because I don't, I'm pretty sure it didn't have any sort of saving. No, save it. No, I don't think so. And you know, I think alter ego and text adventures. One thing that I don't know, I think made them more interesting personally is that they were usually, I guess, created by a single person. Or a couple yeah. of people, you know. So I don't know. I like this the co- cohesion, I guess. I like, like right. you know, you kind of got a, the person's voice, like whoever was writing the game, like alter ego or whatever. You know, you just kind of got that feeling versus, um, you know, I mean, like a game now that might have you know a hundred people or five hundred people or something working on it. It just doesn't seem like, a, uh, you know, like like you're not going to get five hundred people to sign up to make Farmer's Daughter two. that's not happening i I mean if i could find i wish that was the virtual world we lived in if we could find 498 more people (laughs) we could make it happen because i'm in i would do it great if you if you'll write it i'll i'll be in the game (laughs) you can take the pictures i'll be the i could be the i could be the farmer maybe i don't know <laughs> that I could be in that. It does seem like the most difficult person to cast is going to be the daughter, <laughs> especially if they get the uh, a plot description ahead of time. Right, but, right. Uh, I'll, I'll get started <laughs> on it. We um, get weekly updates and get. I'm in. Scrum going. I'm in. So, when was there a specific time when you? Uh, I I know that there's. 
there was like I guess what a lot of people call the classic uh, period of text adventures. You know, with like the the eighties that kind of era. Uh, Scott Adams, Infocom. Uh, I got to talk about Scott Adams too. Okay, um, <laughs> I have not. I could ask you a bunch of questions on Scott uh, Adams because I have. I don't know if I've ever played any of his games other than the those Quest Probe. Oh, games, oh yeah, yeah. Um, Scott Adams wrote Adventure or Adventureland, yes. right? So, um, so whenever we have that on our TRS eighty, so that's like my first experience with text adventures was uh, was Adventure, and mm-hmm. it was. Uh, I don't know it, that for me, it, it kind of like started everything for me. You know what I mean? Like that was my, like when I sat down to a personal computer, I was like, Oh, this is what this is about. you like, you could create stuff and you can interact with the computer. It was like every part of the computer that it kind of all fell into that game. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and then he, we would go to radio shack. I mean, one of the, the biggest problems with the early computers was there wasn't that much software available. Uh, you could get things mail order or radio shack was the only place we could get it, um, locally. And, um, so every, you know, they would, there would be a new Scott Adams text adventure and we would go get that. And and after a few, then he released, um, I I can see this. It was like a binder that opened up and there were six cassette tapes on each side and they were, and they had these gold labels on it. And it was the Scott Adams Gold Collection, and it had all of his games all in this one binder. And it came uh, with a autograph photo of Scott Adams with his arm around this monster that um, <laughs> has awesome. been airbrushed, you know, into the the picture or whatever. And almost as impressive as the monster is Scott Adams' giant afro. Which, <laughs> yes. which, I mean, for a white guy, it's very impressive. It's a, it's a very impressive hairdo. Um, nice. But but yeah, so it's funny to me that um, a lot of people, I mean, when they talk about the beginning of uh, text adventures, they talk, I mean, everybody goes back to Zork. Yeah. But this really predates that. Um, I mean, or at, if nothing else, I mean, the, the Infocom guys will tell you that they played Scott Adams' adventures, right. you know. Yeah. Um, and, and so and I think some of that stuff was going on at the same time. But in, in my personal timeline... It was Scott Adams. Uh, I mean, like, like I played Scott Adams games for two years on the TRS-80, and then we moved to the Apple, and then that's okay. where I uh, encountered Zork, you know. So, um, but uh, yeah, his games were every. It was you know definitely the old school type of game. Uh, so mm-hmm. it was two word commands, you know, like go here, do this, and and um, lots of uh, guess the verb type situations, sure. you know. Did they? Did he kill the player fairly often? If that that you remember? Yeah. Or was he, okay. Yeah, all the time. <laughs> oh, okay. All the time. <laughs> He's He's for me, right? Um, and the uh, uh, and the haunted house game, which I talked about in Commodore a little bit, but but that game would kill you uh, repeatedly. I mean, <laughs> it was terribly difficult to get through. And the worst part about that game was that, um, and I don't know if it was a limitation on how much data the cassette tape could could store or if it was how much RAM the computer had. But the game was divided into two sides. I mean, it was split. So to play the first half of the game, 
you had to load the entire first side of the cassette in, which was like somewhere between 20 and 30 minutes, you know? So you would go do whatever you're going to do right, <laughs> come back, and then you would play through, and it was a two-story house. So you would play through the bottom uh, story of the house, and then eventually you would find stairs that would went up to the second floor. And when you did that, it would say flip the tape over and load the second side. So now you have another... <laughs> 20, 25, 30-minute wait, right? And you load it in. And then at the top of the stairs, the very first room, there was this floating knife. I mean, it said, you know, you come to the top of the stairs, there's a knife floating in front of you. And okay. so you're like, hmm, you know. So you, so you type examine knife, and, and then it says, well, the knife flies across the room and slashes your throat at the end. <laughs> Please flip the cassette tape over and reload side one. And you're like, are you kidding? So you had to flip the tape over, load another 30 minutes, play the whole bottom floor, go up the stairs, and then you had one shot. Well, then, you know, flip the tape over and load the second floor. <laughs> yeah. And then you had one one shot, and if you missed it, the knife would slash your throat. And, wow. you know, so, yeah, that became a... Uh, a my dad was also, you know, into text adventures. I mean, he introduced me to a lot of this stuff. And, uh, you know, between he and I, you know, I could I could lay in my bed and hear him cursing, you know, at <laughs> 2 in the morning, ah, oh, stupid knife, you know, and things like that. Uh, but the, the right answer was get knife. And so if you typed oh. get knife, it would say, okay, you have the knife. And <laughs> that was it, you know. But but I don't know how many different things we tried, you know, at, at an hour a time. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> definitely that's, different that's experience back then, yeah. I had a friend who had a Commodore, so uh, we would go to his house to play to play games, and we, we got the full joy of the, the 1541 drive taking forever to load stuff. Yeah. But this was before, um, or this was after um, cassettes, right. I guess, were big. So I, I missed out on all of this. This is, this is amazing to me, that you got one move. Um, oh, it was terrible. Otherwise, it, it's, wow. And the, uh, yeah, you know, I had... A cassette. I joke, but I I tell people I had a cassette tape for, on the Commodore for about seven minutes, and it may have been longer than that. But um, uh, I mean, I had friends that had data sets. Uh, that was the Commodore brand was the data set, and I okay. knew I didn't want that. <laughs> so I got my um, my uncle had a Commodore sixty four, and the sound died, and so he was gonna buy a new one. And uh, and I think he might have decided to switch to Apple or something. But for whatever reason, he said I could have it if we would pay to get it fixed. And so I did that. And it was like a month before my birthday or something. And I really didn't do anything. And then on my birthday, I got a disk drive. So I, yes. I, I really, okay. yeah, I started with the disk. Now, I know that like, uh, especially like in uh, Europe, the cassette, I mean, a lot of people it was a big cassette um, scene over there, but as far as in the States, I, I don't know anybody who was a serious computer user that stuck with the cassette tape for very long, you know. That was That's awful. Right. Yes. But, um, so, but anyway, what I started saying before was there was like kind of this golden age of text adventures with uh, Infocom for sure, you know, and then there's kind of this... Uh, resurgence or at least an appearance of an of a resurgence i guess it's been going on longer than just the last year which is kind of uh, a lot of people's perception after the release of get lamp but so when did you kind of uh fade away from playing text adventures i think when i so i went off to college in 1992 and uh i remember let's see i think 
EA Sports had their games one year in advance. Like the name of it was one year in advance. Right. Of what right. actual year it was, even back then. Mm-hmm. So when NHL 94 came out, which I want to say was at the beginning of 93, I was pretty much all my computer at college ran. It was just that. Um, <laughs> it's certainly not any, and not any, you know, it didn't bring up Microsoft Word or anything. Uh, but no, we used it to print out, um, we used the printer in order to print out picking the NFL games and we'd play, play hockey on it. And um, so I think at that, at that point, I definitely did not pick up any texted any text adventures new i don't think they were making a whole lot of them mm-hmm. um if anybody was making them it would have been i guess legend um I, and uh so it was it was a dark time for 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 text games but i wasn't thinking much about them either yeah. so that that yeah that whole time in, in college was was one where i really didn't do much with, with with text games or think about them that much yeah see i i got out before that for sure okay. um because uh, and like I said, maybe it was just, I it just missed my, even though we're the same age group, but, <laughs> um, I don't know. I just, I thought of text adventures as being, uh, at that time, um, not as something that was created because people wanted to create them, but they were created sure. out of the limitations of the computer. In other words, yeah. you know, we're, I mean, we're using Skype to talk today because you can't teleport and be here at my house instantly (laughs) but if you could then we wouldn't be doing this you know what i mean so once um for me like once it got into uh wizardry and then from there like the barge tail series and uh ultima also you know uh role playing games got a lot better yeah that that kind of replaced uh, at that at that point yeah that it was like that was kind of like what i thought text adventures were doing you know what I mean? Like, like yep. as far as Bard's Tale, where you would say, okay, well, you know, I mean, they, they had these crude um, uh, dungeon crawler type games that were text adventures, you know, where you would, yeah. you would go this way and that way and there would be traps and, and things like that. And, you know, once you could see that in Bard's Tale and you could have your little party, then I just kind of quit playing the text adventures, you know. Totally. Yeah, my dad brought home a EGA monitor one one night, completely unexpected, <laughs> and we loaded up Bard's Tale, saw all of sixteen colors, and we definitely were not, you know, thinking, oh, you know, I, I, I wonder what Zork Two is going to look like in EGA. And we <laughs> right. sort of, yeah, at that point, kind of forgot. Right, right, right. About test games for a bit. It's like it's funny because in, in Gatland, people will make the argument that your imagination can have the best graphics, and you know what? Just I, I agree to that to to some extent, but still, when you have been looking at it. It's just the awful graphics, of especially for PC because yeah. you you had it yeah I mean as bad as it was on the Commodore 64 it was it was much worse just on the PC and the in the PC Junior so to get to get anything that would come up um, and look as nice as um, as the original Bard's Tale in, in color just that that hypnotizes you to to some extent um, and, and really makes you want to go after those and and, and just enjoy the new. Felt like you're in the future. Yeah, yeah. You know, my, I'm, of course, my dad's old joke um, as a, a PC guy was, you know, it'll do four colors as long as two <laughs> of them are black and white. You know, <laughs> and would, so you had that that yeah. one, the weird. Um, well, I think it's the the same palette you have on the front page of, of your website with the, yeah. the yeah, purple exactly, yeah. and the turquoise. You know. Um, and then it was, yeah, we, we had, um, <laughs> yes, uh, speaking of the four colors, we had, we had a game adventure construction set, which would let you pick yes, any yeah. of the four colors 
on the, on, the, on the PC to use. And I remember having an argument with myself once. I'm like, well, you know, I could probably get away not using white. <laughs> that would give me, you know, yellow in addition to blue and purple. So that's a resource management sim and a construction set at the same time. You know, one of the biggest disappointment uh, programs, and it's funny because of all the, the things that I've downloaded over the years, you know, for free, yeah. and then every now and then, like, something would come out that I would really want to support. And then I go buy it, and it's terrible. <laughs> I don't know why it works out like that. But I bought um, Barge Tail Construction Set. Yes, which yes. Came out and, yeah. um, boy, it was just I mean, the, the biggest disappointment for me was, uh, and this was at a, gosh, I don't know when that was, like 92, 93, somewhere around there. I mean, we're definitely in the, the VGA era and doing graphics. And the only graphics it supported was, like their own proprietary, like deluxe paint for the yeah. PC, which nobody owned. <laughs> like you couldn't import, you know, no GIFs, no PCX yep. files, anything like that, you know. And so it was like you can, it was like Apple now. It was like you can create whatever you want as long as it falls in our little box. Of... God, I remember when I first moved to Colorado, it was about 1998. The Bart construction set had been out for a while. And I, I was really getting the itch to, to make to make computer games. And I, I said to myself, you know, I'm either going to go forward with Inform, the text adventure language, or, or this Bard's Tale construction set, but I'm going to give them both, both, both a, a fair shot. And I tried to find some sort of community of Bard's Tale construction set enthusiasts. It didn't, didn't really seem to exist. And then, yeah, <laughs> using the program is so awkward. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was, I, I was so... Because, you know, the first time I loaded, like... If it's Barge Tail construction set, you would think the easiest thing to do with it would be to like recreate Barge Tail, <laughs> which yes. would, I, if I'd started in '93, I would still be working on. <laughs> they couldn't have possibly have written Barge Tail with Barge Tail construction set. I was so disappointed with that. But yeah. um, uh, so, when did you, uh, I guess, decide that you wanted to start writing? Well, I guess writing games in general, and then what made you decide that you wanted to write? these types of games um it, it kind of goes back to what you were saying about how one person can make a text adventure and it, well the result that you get doesn't look quite as janky as one person trying to make a, a first person shooter or a sports game or something right. it seemed like they were the easiest to make um when i got a hold of graham nelson's uh instruction manual the, the informed designers guide it was it was such a, a marvelous uh, book to not only teach you how to program, but why you would want to create certain things and how you can do them and inform. And I think that book, more than anything else, really got me passionate about trying to learn how to program and do a little bit of object-oriented uh, programs. Mm -hmm. And it was just such a, such a wonderful thing that he put together there. Um, the, and, and then at the same time, the, the games that people had started to make with Inform were really, really good and really fun. And that was a community that I thought I wanted to be a part of. Like when Adam Cadre came out with Interstate Zero, just a really funny game. And um, gave you a wonderful uh, experience of going through a virtual world. And um, the, the jokes in it were hilarious. And, and I thought, well, you know, it's, yeah, it seems... And at one point he had the source code available to it. So I had, like, everything I needed in order to get going with them. I had um, source code that I could look at. If I got stuck, I had a wonderful manual to teach me what it is I wanted to do. 
And uh, at the time, this was important, uh, you were able to turn a inform.z5 file into an executable, like a Windows executable. Oh, so that doesn't okay. matter now, of course. Okay. But back then, that was pretty great because you could uh, give it to people and they could just click on it and run it. Right, right. So all those things were really just running up the score as to why inform seemed like a, like a great uh, way to go back then. You know, I wrote my little GitLamp uh, interactive review yeah. in Inform, and mm-hmm. I, I guess I never, um, I, I'm, I don't do a lot of. I mean, I do uh, some VB programming and stuff like that, but for the most part, I do like at work, I do a lot of scripting, but I don't do uh, any object-oriented coding. You know, so mm-hmm. looking at Inform, I mean, putting all the pieces together, even as a first-time writer, I thought. Uh, and I, I'm not saying, you know, that I'm a master of it by any stretch of the imagination, but <laughs> but just being able to sit down and look through the manual and stuff, it was fairly easy to put together a game that worked. Yeah, they've, they've done a wonderful job with that. It's, yeah, it's you can really just get going. You can get your first room built. You can um, you know, give the player character a name. You can type a swear word into the program, and it, it very, very quickly. Right, and the... Um, you know, being, I, I guess, um, you know, as from a player standpoint, it seems kind of magical to like, okay, well, there's a chair there and you can uh, sit in the chair or stand or move the chair, but you can't take the chair, you know, those sorts of things where you think, uh, you know, whoever programmed it must have put in just a huge amount of work just to handle how you would, you know, interact with the chair but then on the on the back side it's really not that you know especially right. you know you just give it properties and say this is you know a piece of furniture and it acts like furniture and so they've they've taken a lot of the uh, uh, heavy lifting out of it for you yeah and they, they also yeah they're doing that within form 7 as well like there's so many extensions now that you can just include by saying um, you know, include such and such by Eric Eve um, like an example of that, so I was, I was darking around with it in Form 7 a couple, a couple weeks ago, and I thought, you know, without doing much on my part, I was able to create just a little program that had a complete working computer that Emily Short developed that would allow you to um, send and receive email through, through the game. Like, not like email that we would get, but just all internal email. Mm-hmm. And, and, and run searches, so like if you wanted to search for something... Um, and have text come back, it would do that. Uh, there was another plugin that handled getting the game uh, text to work in the, uh, the first person uh, as opposed to the second person, which, most li- which most games are like. Just all this stuff that you could get for free by just typing in a sentence and downloading it from the Inform 7 site. Uh, it's, yeah, it's just astounding. There was, there was something for the status menu so that you could always know which directions you had available, which I've had to program in the game that I'm working on right now for Hugo on a room-by-room basis. So to be able to just drop a library in and have that go, it, it's really exciting. It's really cool for new authors to be able to have access to all these powerful things um, without really much effort on their part. And these, um, I know you've mentioned uh, Hugo. So there's Hugo, there's Inform. I know that there's Tads. Yes. Um, have you written in all those? Are there any, um, uh, I know Inform, I know there's an Inform scene, but I'm not too uh, familiar with the other ones. Are they all still, are people using all those still? And are they, I mean, is there any advantage to using one over the other? 
I think the yeah, there are there are still communities about all 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 three of those. There um, there's another one for called Adrift for people who maybe do not want to program. And I don't know the state of their community. I think they're um, they're, they're still doing fine. But yeah, for informed tads in, in Hugo, um, I know the least about what tads is like these days. I believe people are still writing tads games. And I think there were some in the competition last year. The, the Hugo community is, is mostly, there's about, wow, there's probably less than a dozen of us. But we all get on the interactive fiction mud and, um, and help each other with our problems. Uh, well, with our, with our problems in Hugo, not like our, <laughs> our other. Although, I suppose. Um, so yeah, we, we'll help each other with, with, uh, with stuff. Um, John Blask has done. Uh, he's uh, Rudy Yogurt on uh, on my bulletin board there. Okay. He's done. He's done a just amazing work getting some stuff going. Like for instance, I got a uh, and the thing I'm working on now. I, I had a list of creatures that you could pick from to go fight other people, and the list was not sorting. So a bunch of us in the Hugo community were like, okay, let's 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 get some sort routines out. Um, I looked at trying to do a bubble sort, even though like. Um, Everybody who I talked to before and since says that the bubble sort is the worst kind of sort. <laughs> right. It was the one that I learned in community college, and I just didn't get a chance to use it. In, but yeah, it still sucks. They haven't really improved it <laughs> much. But um, yeah, you know, we got, got some sorting together. Um, uh, the manipulation of the, of the screen and trying to get um, windows set up in Hugo, something that some people have looked at. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. Hugo's by far, you have to kind of know where to go in order to get help on it. Um, but yeah, all all three of them are, are still alive and kicking. Oh, it's pretty that's cool. Neat. And I I guess I mean everything to do with these is all free, which is something that yeah. amazed me, you know. And and even um I mean there's so many forums out there of people that are willing to to help you out or or help test games or even come up with ideas, you know. Um I mean for for uh, putting stuff together. So it's pretty amazing. The one cool thing, yeah, the one cool thing about Inform is, is uh, when when Graham Nelson released it, he essentially said, like, not in so many words, "Hey, look, you, you release it, you own it," um, basically implying no matter what kind of sadistic, uh, terrifying game, no matter how <laughs> sick it is. And and you met Adam Thornton, yeah, and we were, uh, yeah, and so his his game is, um, it's, it's delightfully sick. It's uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what I told him. It's. It's disgusting in a, in, a, in a way which makes it's almost impressive with uh, <laughs> how sick the game he's working on right now, um, the new Stiffy McCain game. But no one's going to give him a hard time when he releases that. If he wanted to put it on a CD and sell it, or if, if you know he wanted to go into a dark alley and surprise people with it, he would be able to do that. And that's, that's totally cool. That, yeah, there's no restrictions at all on what you make and in, in, in inform um, and how you want to distribute it. So... I, I, it, I wonder why did um I don't know I, I, this is kind of addressed I guess in in um uh Jason Scott's documentary Get Lamp but it's kind of like text adventures maybe they didn't go away but they went away from the average you know computer gamer or whatever it's like a lot of people just moved on it might be yeah. it sounds bad but but a a way to put it you know where they moved on to other gaming genres and stuff like that and so do do you think it is are we seeing a, a a resurgence right now or is it just because there's more attention on it um from uh get lamp and and other things i think that 
Um, well, they went away for a while, I think, because initially TADS, you had to register TADS at the very, very beginning. Okay. And that's always going to make some people not get into it, even if it's just 25 bucks to, to let them uh, create, uh, you know, to let them create games that are, that are, that are amazing. That's um, going to put a little, that's going to put a few people off. In, in Form, I want to say in Form 6, uh, I'm going to get this wrong, but I think it was around 1994 or 1995 when that was released. So there was like a chunk of time where there really wasn't great tools to make games in the first place. But I think, I think now they're, um, like, a good example is, is the game that won the interactive fiction competition uh, this last year. And what I've, I haven't played it yet, but what I've been told is that the author took a look at all the extensions he could get for free that would help his game and place them in, in his game in order to make it very approachable. And um, a game by Aaron Reed called Blue Lacuna does the same thing, where it's going to try to help you play it. It's going to try to notice if you're being stuck and try to do things to get you into a situation where you get back on track and know what to, what to type in. So I think they're becoming more approachable. Yeah, you know, um, I mean, my biggest pet peeve in gaming, I mean, it's not even a pet peeve. It will get me to stop playing a game almost immediately, is when I don't know where I'm supposed to be going or what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, um... Right. And something like, oh, like we talked about uh, Bard's Tale. In Bard's Tale, you yeah. know, you're you're in um, Scarebray, and uh, you know they would say, okay, well, you need to go, you know, somewhere in this town. There's a thing. Well, I'm willing to do that because I know what the yeah, parameters exactly. are. You know, you know, you do this, or uh, you know, in, in um, yeah. Mar- it's like you it's know, snowing out. Everybody's thirsty. You got to kick somebody's ass. <laughs> right. Awesome. Let's go. Yeah, you know, right. Super Mario Brothers. I know I need to keep going right, and that's all I need. You know, I mean, there may be obstacles and pipes and things to jump on or whatever, but I know that ultimately I need to get to the right <laughs> until I can't go yes. right anymore. You know, and then <laughs> right. when um, Mario sixty four came out uh, with the Nintendo sixty four, I was lost. It was like this this open three D area, and I didn't know where I was supposed to go, and I didn't know what I was supposed to do. And I've, I mean, I've literally played that game probably less than 10 or 15 minutes. I mean, and I've, yeah. I've gone back to it a few times, but it's just that, that weird openness of not knowing what I'm supposed to be doing that turns me off, you know? And so I, with text adventures, I've heard that from people before. I mean, if you don't know what you're supposed to be doing, then, you know, people just kind of give up. So that, that's interesting that they're putting that in games now. Yeah, it's, that, that is my one, that is the one thing that I don't like about um, text adventure games in general is that ideally i should have i should know exactly what to type in after the initial text comes up oh but okay so that can be tough to do but within the first five moves i'd really better have a goal in mind and if i don't i'm going to set that game down and you know maybe i'll come back to it at some point but it's there's we have so many options now that we didn't when we were kids and i think um a text game especially in a um you know, a sub-marginal genre like text adventures, it, it really ought to go out of its way to let you know that you've got a goal in mind that you can be working towards right from the beginning. Right, yeah. We don't need to make them less approachable. I think a lot of them don't do that these days. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. so you're going to say what? We don't, we no, don't so we to... don't need to make them less approachable <laughs> at this <laughs> point, you know. But... It's tough, yeah, because there, there's a, a tendency to, you know, you start your game off, you, your player doesn't know anything, and... You want to like be on, on your player's side, so maybe your dude has amnesia, or maybe your player character doesn't doesn't know what's going on. 
but we've seen so many games like that where, um, I don't know, my philosophy is give enough backstory to the player, try to make the player laugh, or try to turn the player on, or try, try, to, try to give them some reason to, to keep going at the beginning. After a few moves, they'll, they'll figure out if your voice is one that they want to be you know, sure. locked in a room with for a while. But yeah, yeah that's, that, that is something that I think can be improved. And that's an interesting um, problem, you know, because uh, I've been working on a, a text adventure. And, and so trying to merge the two worlds of a character in a story that should know uh, things about his or her world and conveying that to a player that doesn't know the things uh i mean for example uh in, in the game i was working on or am working on uh there there's a car and you could mm-hmm. go certain places but you have to come over the logistics of how to get from one i mean like like you know how to get to the store i mean as a, as a person and then as a person in this game you know what i mean so you shouldn't make that a puzzle because that's right. something you ought to be able to do <laughs> you know what i mean like, right. yes exactly uh, it, it's yes. like the uh, the, the the graphical uh, equivalent of this is like every first person shooter I have ever played, where I can uh, you know I have a machine gun and I do all this and then um, I used to play Ghost Recon a lot, and uh, you know so you're running and then all of a sudden there's like this rickety fence that's two foot tall and I can't go over it. I'm like are you <laughs> right. kidding? Like I'm part of the world's elite soldier squad and I can't <laughs> kick this fence over or climb over it. No, you got to go all the way around, you know. And, and so it's those weird kind of things that in our in our real world don't make sense, you know, and that yeah. it's those things that immediately mentally take you out of the game. Yeah. I, I think what text adventures can do best for that is to make the simplest thing work. Like it would it, it's from a programmer standpoint, it could be interesting the first time you implement a car and a person's got to get the key and put the key in and then you know, uh, depress pedal with foot. And <laughs> right. No, but nobody wants to. Nobody wants to do that. It, um, the simplest thing is just like drive to store to type that in or drive car. Um, and may, maybe that that sets you up for failure if someone who has played a thousand of these things actually does try to um, you know, insert key into um, mm-hmm. you know keyhole or, or whatever. But um, it, it yeah. Just, being able, if you if the player expresses a concept in very simple terms and you make that work, you at least will not have a frustrated player. Right. So there's that at least. So yeah. yeah, well, the way that I got around it was I put a GPS in the car. So when you <laughs> so bad. <laughs> so you so how, say, well, this is very interesting to me. So okay, so he's in the he's in the car and you mm, have a GPS. Right. So like in order to go to the store. What is the, and I don't mean to, to like totally spoil your game or anything. We can cut this part out if these are like huge spoilers. <laughs> That's all right. What, like, what, what, how do you, how did you get the, the GPS working with, uh, with the drive verb and stuff like that? Well, uh, pretty much I circumvented all that. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I used the uh, talk plug-in. So, okay. like, when you talk to someone, uh, and then, you know, uh, like you had done in, in some of your games where, in, well, in, um, uh, in the Chicks game. So yes. when you talk to somebody and then you got certain choices back, got it. Uh, so, so the uh, GPS is voice activated. So, so you that, talk to totally, the yeah, right. That's cool. So it, it's um, like a, it's a way around the problem. Yeah. Uh, um, so you know you talk to the GPS and it says where do you want to go and then when you respond, then there's a little verbiage in there about okay well now you drive to the store or whatever you know but but I, I if the puzzle was starting the car, I right. would have been willing to put more. 
work into making a functional car. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like I do. Yeah. Uh, but but I mean, the, for me, the car is just something that has to be there because you don't also live at the store. I mean, the player has, <laughs> there has to be a logical way to get to the store. So, but I I I, I kind of wanted to just make it a seamless, you know, just you know, get to the store that sort of thing. Right. So. No, I'm, I'm totally with you on the menu thing because I was uh, it was like three years into uh, crypto into making Crypto Zookeeper, and I realized that I, uh, at one point the player was going to unlock three new areas to go to. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, the last thing I want. You know what? I just want to get them there. So <laughs> I, I just give them a menu. They, they go south to the, to the end of the city. They get to pick through, through one through three to go to the <laughs> new areas. And like, Because nobody cares. Nobody, nobody's going to want to walk for, for 15 moves. Um, so, yeah. I, I've Good run, old menu. Yeah. I've, well, I've run into that um, as... Uh, as I get closer to the end of the game, yeah. Whereas, uh, well, for like, I mean, the last three moves would do something, and I found that I didn't put any of the moves in the game. I just kind of wrote like, "Well, you did this, and you did this, and good, good job, you won," you know, that sort of thing. And you kind of have yeah. to to uh, to back up a little bit and let the players actually, you know, play. Right. <laughs> no. Yeah. Totally. There's. Yeah. And again, that's a. That's not to spoil the thing I'm working on, but I, uh, I've been working on it for so freaking long. And there, there was one part where they're, the, the five main characters are stuck in an area, and the initial design document was, was hoping to have the actual player get some inspiration how to get out, how to get out of the locked area. But then I'm, I'm coding this through, and I'm thinking, well, you know, the, all the non-player characters have really done is make fun of the main character of the whole game. <laughs> Maybe they could, on their own, as part of a uh, script, solve this tiny little puzzle and get out. Mm-hmm. And I, you know what? I'm gonna run with that. That's fine. That means that, that means that the player, for for one section in this giant ass game, just has to type Z for wait a few times. All right, that's that's fine. <laughs> so um, the uh, well, now I want to ask you about. Your game, and I know, I know you don't want to. I don't want to spoil any part of it, but you said you've been working on it for years. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. Both the ones I've been working on, I've worked on for about twelve minutes, and I, and I feel like I put too much time into it. So I'm so envious. I can't even begin to tell you. I like the, the next game. Well, like, I, I told Jason Scott this. I said that if this game is a is a failure, then the next game I'm going to make is just going to be like a half hour game called Text Fucking, and all of this is going to be just. I can imagine. Go in. Be, go out. Yeah. <laughs> go in. You know what? We right. rebranded. It's Farmer's Daughter 2. <laughs> <laughs> so I, how did yeah. you get involved in Get Lamp? I, I mean, uh, well, I guess we should talk about Get Lamp. Sure. Get Lamp is um, Jason Scott's documentary about uh, text adventures, and it has interviews with um, Scott Adams and all the guys from Infocom and p- some people that played uh, text adventures and then a lot of people that are in members of the current uh, interactive fiction scene uh, authors of, of games and stuff so um, did he how did how did the two of you hook up he, uh, there's a thread on my uh, bulletin board on, uh, on Jill Country that uh, Pinback started he found out about Jason's previous documentary called the BBS documentary and um, Pinback knew that I ran a BBS in Rochester, New York, uh, in the uh, 90s. So he just started the thread, put a link there, and said, um, hey, Rob, how come you're not in this documentary? And so I I was vaguely aware of the BBS documentary, but I didn't know Jason at all. And it never occurs to me that that 
that anybody's actually going to find any of my websites. <laughs> right. So, I talk an enormous amount of crap, and it's extremely cocky, and it makes me sick to read it years later. But I said something like, ah, that's because the, you know, the guy couldn't interview the system operator of every single bulletin board that ever existed, and you know, you know, no, no problem there, blah, 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 whatever. And then I think I said something like, plus, you know, looking at that thing, it was, I think it was $50 at the time for a single yeah, documentary. Yeah. And, it, and so, oh, that's way too much money. And, you know, uh, totally speaking, out my butt. <laughs> of course, I, d I didn't know that there's there's what five discs, six or five or six discs to the yeah. US documentary. Um, but he flew all over the world to go talk to people. That the packaging was so, uh, that the packaging was awesome. Yeah, I had no idea. Well, he had a Google alert or something that let him know that we were talking about his movie. <laughs> so he drops in, like, "Hey, fellas, how's it going?" Um, he then said, um, you know, he clarified some things about the, the PBS documentary, which then caused some of my less civilized users to get into it with him. But, but he was, he maintained his call. I'm sure he's done this a hundred times. Right. Gone into a community and then won them over um, by being pretty cool. And um, he said that his next one was going to be about text adventures. And he said, hey, Rob, uh, you'll be contacted. And in fact, he bought a copy of Necrotic Drift from me got my address and sent me a copy of the PBS documentary um, and then quoted the, the, what I said about the PBS documentary without knowing about it, mm -hmm. like on the packaging, which was, which was very funny. <laughs> I've got a, a picture of it um, somewhere on the, on the net. But he, 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 then he flew out to Colorado to interview me and Paul O'Brien. And at the time, he interviewed a, he interviewed a guy... Um, his first name is Kevin, and he runs the pinball place in Lyons, Colorado. And for the life of me, I can't remember his last name. Um, but he, he, he had the idea at that time for his arcade documentary as well. So he thought, hey, you know, I'm coming out, out this way. I'll go interview a guy who is somehow keeping an, an arcade uh, going in the year you know, 2007 or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, that's, that's, how that all, that's how that all got, got started and how I met him and um, got involved in the project. That's good. And um, have you seen um, any effect? I guess. I, I mean, this is the bad. I mean, if there's any bad, I don't know that, that this is even bad. But um, sure. uh, you know, once the movie came out, I mean, there was there was um, a lot of build up, you know, and mm -hmm. then it's like everybody runs to those places every you know there's like this sudden surge of interest and stuff you know that's like yeah. all these people and then now it's like a lot of those people are kind of fading back away you know what i mean so mm -hmm. but i don't know if that's good or bad or, or just a side effect i guess <laughs> I, th I think the only the only thing was is that um when i when i learned how to do google alerts it was i was really interested in what people said about getlamp as well mm -hmm. and it's funny because if you don't care about modern text games, then there's whole sections of Get Lamp which won't do anything for you. Right. And, and, and the reverse is true. There's some people who just they don't care about the old school text games at all either. And they, what they really wanted to see, what they brought to the viewing of the documentary was what they thought it would uh, be a discussion of the really great modern text games. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the documentary's not about that either. So yeah, every once in a while you'll get... Um, you know, I get a little thing that shows up where somebody made an offhand comment about the movie. 
Um, and if they're dissing the Infocom guys, I'm like, wow, most of them are rich. They can handle it. They probably have the success anyway. Right. F them. But then they'll be like, oh, yeah, it would have been nice without all the modern players. And, and if I had more time, like, if, it, if, if I didn't spend five years working on the same stupid game, that would, that would make me <laughs> jump on the forum and say, we're keeping this alive. But whatever. No, it's all good. It's, um, I don't, there, there have been no negative things to come up, come up from it uh, on, in my perspective. And, like, he interviewed me before King of Kong came out. Mm -hmm. When King of Kong came out, I'm like, wow, it's really possible for a documentary maker to totally make whoever's in their movie look like a bunch of ass bags. So we just got like, <laughs> right. lucky that Jason likes all of us. Um, <laughs> we're, we were fortunate more than anything else. Well, he also we also knew that because he he'd done VBS as well. Right, he right, sure. Them very, very well. But but still, yeah. Yeah, it all worked. No, I think it all worked out. Did you know what did you think of the of the movie? Now I, I get that I did play your review, but um, you liked it for the most part, I would say that's uh, Yeah, thing. yeah, I liked it. Um, yeah. I thought it was, uh, I, I mean, I I could say a million things that I liked about it. So just say sure. that that I liked almost everything about it, you know. Yeah. Um, the only thing I didn't like about it is, and I realized from a historic uh, standpoint it makes sense, but it just seemed really inf not, not Infocom heavy, because I think that's the reality. Yes. Um, th that's the reality... As far as from a financial standpoint or what, you sure. know, like if you want to talk about, you know, who was selling text adventures, it was Infocom, you know, and then yeah. uh, and then whoever was in second place or third place was really far down the ladder, you know, but yeah. um, I don't know. It, that, that was the only thing that I would have liked to see more of was like the the one off guys, the farmer's daughter guys or the, <laughs> you know, um, because or um, like. Uh, you were talking about some of the, the graphical text adventures. Like I remember there was a Hobbit. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. The, the type game, you know, where it would have these pictures of Middle Earth, and you would go around, and it was the same type of thing. Or, or um, the the Rambo game that I used to play was put out by Mindscape, um, or at least published by them. You know, so so there were other companies doing it, but mm -hmm. I don't think. I mean, I think it was more like either they dabbled in it, you know, or I mean, it wasn't like, you know, so, so as far as going back, I think Infocom guys are probably where the, the major, if you understand their story, I think you can kind of, you know, read between the lines and see the other stories. But that was the only thing because, I mean, from a, a player and a young player, I mean, as a kid, Infocom didn't mean anything more to me than Mindscape or joe sure. blows game or anything like that. so you know as as a kid and a player of text adventures they were all equal you know right. so but looking back i can see why it why it has such a a focus on that you know but that was um really the only thing i mean seeing uh you know uh scott adams uh jason interviewed scott adams who like like we talked about you know it's the first games that i played on a computer yeah. i mentioned that on my website and then and then posted the um the interactive review which was a a text adventure or a review an interactive review written i don't know it's hard to explain <laughs> written within form yes uh, yes i'm with you yes which scott adams came and played and then <laughs> signed up for updates on my website and i thought that's it i've made it <laughs> i don't need to do anything else screw the book writing the podcast is <laughs> oh, that's over. Fantastic. That's it. Scott Adams has signed up for. Um, I hope he listens to the podcast. I'm going to dig out that picture. You know what? This is funny. 
um, uh-huh. a few years ago. And, <laughs> this really doesn't have anything to do with anything. But if <laughs> several, you know, I've got to the point now with um, with my dad to where uh, we, we both of us have everything we need in our lives, which has made sure. uh, buying gifts at Christmas time and things like that more. We have to put a lot more thought into it. It's not like, you know, I can't just go to Best Buy and buy him a TV. He has a TV. <laughs> He's 62. He has all, you know, right. has a computer. He has all those things, right? And so um, I was uh, bidding on a TRS-80 Model 3 on eBay, which which was our first computer. And I had the whole deal set up and I had emailed Scott Adams. And I said, if I win this, I'm going to ship it to your house. I want you to autograph it (laughs) and then ship it to my dad. And then at the last minute I got outbid (laughs) on the stupid computer and it ruined the whole thing. So uh, (laughs) it wasn't by Scott Adams, was it? No, it was was someone else's computer. You know, you guys are not signing nothing. (laughs) Exactly. But, um, that's uh, funny. Yeah, it's funny because yeah, you would think that your story would be a unique one, Black. <laughs> but right now, there's somebody out there who's like, "Man, I'm so glad I got this TRS-80." I know the bastard. They're like, "Look who I outbid." <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, uh, yeah, there was like this whole. It was a whole ordeal because, um, and I'm taking this way. I may. I don't know if I'll cut this out or not. But I um, I went to. We have like a citywide garage sale thing, okay. and. Um, uh, it's like a once a year, you know, where all the uh, nonprofit organizations come and bring things. And so I went yep. to that and there was a TRS-80 there. And so it was like, oh, my plan is going to be like, I'm going to be able to do this, you know. And so uh-huh. I bought it and I got it home and the monitor was dead. And it has, <laughs> you know, the built in monitor. Right. Uh, and it's a 12 inch black and white monitor. It's not like I can just, you know, go get one <laughs> off the shelf or whatever. And I looked at it. And so um, anyway, I had it. um I had it in the back of my truck for like a month. <laughs> like I would just hang <laughs> on to it because it, it, it doesn't work. You know what I mean? Like right. it doesn't do anything, but there's just something about seeing it. that yeah. I was like, oh, I can't get rid of this, you know? And, um, <laughs> my, uh, uh, one of the guys from my forum, the uh, icebreaker, uh, came to visit and we were going to thrift stores. And so we ended up, uh, throwing it away in a, a, um, trash dumpster behind a Mexican restaurant. So that's where <laughs> That was the ultimate fate of the TRS-80, but I I wanted it. I had such a hard time getting rid of it because I just, you know, um, and that that's where nostalgia and a lot of the stuff comes in where it's like you just see it and you think, you know, you remember, I remember playing those games, you know, and I wanted it to work so bad, but it. I'm sure it gave it a delightful surprise to whoever was throwing out the old chimichanga sauce that <laughs> right night. Up. Yeah, yeah it's the Mexican place. Some guy behind the Los Compadres, and there it was, <laughs> <laughs> right there. So, yeah, that was. That how was how much was that? How much was the the? How, what did the TRC get up to? Do you remember on eBay? Um, you know what? I I remember thinking I'm in for about a hundred bucks. Okay, I'm so right around there. So it must be just a, yeah. yeah, just a little. Well, I think it was um. Like a hundred dollars, and then it was going to be like sixty for shipping, you know, or something. I mean, because I was going to have to ship it twice. Yeah, um, and, Ooh, that's and they're not. Point, yeah. yeah, they're not, and with the built-in monitor and all that, they're not. Um, they're not light, so right. um, yeah, it was a disappointment. But I, but you know what? I forwarded uh, the Scott Adams email to my dad, so that was like it's like it's kind of a second place, you know. <laughs> it's not like the yeah. the autograph computer, but man, what can you do? Well, we'll keep our eyes open for another TRS-80, and as long as the eBay description doesn't say something that 
you know, it smells like a Taco Bell. I know <laughs> right, I know where that one's been. Kidding, and that one doesn't yeah, work. Yeah. <laughs> got one down. I, yeah. I should have marked it somehow, you know, so, uh, so I, because that would be my lot, is that I would buy the same one again, you know. And I'm like, ah, and it has free holies in the drive or something like that. But um, I've been trying to get a copy of uh, uh, Oatopas. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. It's it's O O dash T O P O S for 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 years now. Just like a box copy, mm-hmm. and it's funny how some of the stuff, the the there's the, I, I don't know where they got their idea. You know, asking for the kind of money that they're asking for. It seemed like the TRS eighty. That did seem reasonable, like a hundred bucks right. for computer like that yeah. that worked. That seemed very reasonable. Some of the stuff that I've tried to grab, like trying to get a copy of Wasteland for the C sixty four in a box, it's been extremely pricey. Um, it's so, yeah. Some of this old stuff, it really does. It like any any sort of fun you might get out of the impulse buying of it mm-hmm. goes right away when it's like they want fifty four ninety nine. Yeah, for yeah. I remember. Um, I well, I still have uh, Bard's Tale and um, a few of the other electronic arts games in the. I guess they called them like the the album. Uh, sure. You know, they were like the flat box that opened yep. up. You know, like an album, and. Yeah. Um, I thought, you know what? I, I don't know how many different games they released in that format. I think I have Pinball Construction Set, maybe a couple others like that. And I thought, God, I should collect all these. And I went on eBay, and the first one was like $60. And I went, well, that's over. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was like a hobby that ended 30 seconds after it started. <laughs> yep, that's over. <laughs> and, and you know, with the modern mentality of... You know, well, if it's old, it must be you know worth yeah. something. You know, and and, with, and anybody can sell on eBay. It's it's harder to find those things of, you know. I mean, I'm sure people threw those away in the trash. Sure. You know, I'm sure yeah. you know you could have got them for a couple of bucks or something. But now, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Damn yeah, eBay. eBay is like the double-edged sword. It's like you can get <laughs> you know stuff, but I just paid twenty dollars for these. Um, Stupid little rubber space guys that used to be in McDonald's Happy Meals. <laughs> it's so ridiculous, you know. <laughs> and when I saw them, I was like, "Holy crap! I used to have these, you know." Well, you got to get them back again. Right, that's right. Yeah, that's why I buy it, you yeah. know. And then um, my wife, you know, I opened the box and she's like, "What are those?" I'm like, "These were the guys in McDonald's Happy Meals, you know." And she's like, "Well, I know that, but what are you gonna do with them?" I'm like, "Shit, I don't know." But look how cool they are. And she's like, "Yeah, but so that part didn't." I haven't got to that part yet of the what to do with them. Yes, but. it's a good thing that you've already gone on dates with her and um, <laughs> sort of woo her over. It, it's good. Right. And if it's like everything else, I'll either keep it forever or I'll sell it on eBay for half of what I paid, <laughs> <laughs> which is the, wor- it's the worst uh, business model, you know. But, uh, yeah, so uh, what? Uh, I guess we talked about GitLamp. I mean, was there any, uh, I assume you enjoyed it? and Yeah, I think, um, like, Jason said once that he hopes that he eventually makes the worst text adventure documentary out there. Meaning that if, if somebody watched that and said, God, there was nothing about British IF, I think he would be the first person to. Mm-hmm. And he's just a dude. It's, you know, he's not HBO, so he's unable to. Like, I'm trying to think, if, if someone was going to go make a documentary about level nine and magnetic scrolls, you, I can't see any way to do it unless you're already in uh, England. And some of them, people are going to drop out. Not everybody wants to be a part of a documentary. Right. So there's going to be a certain percentage you're never going to get to. Um, but, but, yeah, it was... I, I remember watching the um, hour-long cut he had of Get Lamp in PAX. It would have been, been about, about a year ago. 
And I just thought it was it was the greatest movie I'd ever, I'd ever seen. And he, at one point, has a part where he brings all of the Infocom um, developers in, like, to say something, like, one right after another. And it's, it's like an all-star lineup. It's like going through the 27 Yankees for dorks. And I think, <laughs> wow, this is, this is just amazing. That, that, that piece of, of, of film, that, that stretch he had right there, just, just blew my mind. So, yeah. Now, the, um, uh, the original Infocom games came with what have now I didn't I don't remember calling them this at the time but they call them feelies now like oh yeah like a little yeah. thing you know a little uh really I always thought of they were just like a reward for buying the game it was it was kind of <laughs> right it was kind of slightly predated um actual physical copy protection and we could talk about that in a minute but um uh so as kind of a throwback to that get lamp comes with a numbered coin and and didn't people who participated in the movie or were interviewees didn't you get like a lower numbered coin or something yeah i'm trying to um yeah i think i got i think i got number 21 or something it's actually out in the other room and i don't have any sort of wireless system in place let's just say it's Um, 21 yeah, I got number, number 21. Tw- <laughs> it's, yeah, so... You uh, know whoever has number 21, if it's not you, is going to contact me. <laughs> I see he's going to be fuming. He's going to be like, and you're in my basement, and inside my mind. Um, yeah, the, the, the coins are really great. Um, man, it, it just... We didn't buy too many Infocon games as a family growing up. I hate to say it. I mean, I've bought them over and over and over again every chance that I've had since then. But w- when we did get some... Um, it seemed like such an event, an event where you would go uh, and get all this free stuff with it. it. It was it was great. Like I remember to immediately choose an example, which is in a text game that results in Ultima Seven. The black gate gives you the like a little moonstone, mm-hmm. and it's just this little chunk of plastic. You know, it's it's dumb, but for some reason having having that ap- appeals to the same kind of people who play these games. Yeah. Um, and having that glow-in-the-dark stone for for Wishbringer, this <laughs> is awesome. And I don't know, how, you know, I don't know how many times that you know a gal would have been over and like, what's that glowing thing in the dark? Like, oh, nothing, honey. That's it's certainly not a feely from a text adventure that is mysteriously and inexplicably in my room. Well, and it seems like the the feelies like in the, in the early like the early Infocom days had no. Uh, added value to that the game itself i mean it, it may have added to the uh uh whatever you want to say like the enjoyment of the package or to the atmosphere or whatever but you didn't need those things to play the game yeah, i'm trying to remember if there's any like I, I don't think there was one where they specifically made you look up a word in yeah because the then it moved into that and then eventually we got into like the the code wheel things which didn't have anything to do with the game at all it was just uh, yeah. you know I think Infocom didn't didn't engage in any of that. I think that I want to I want to say there was there was one. You know, I haven't played them all, so for all I know, like Sea Stalker, that one for for little children. All, all all it is is it wants you to read back the manual because it's trying to test your ability to read. But but I but I think that yeah, um, they helped create atmosphere. But I, I I well seeing how they've sold the games over and over again on just a CD. Right. Right. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So um. With GitLamp, I don't like I said, a lot of people have shown back up into the, or, you know, people that, like myself, who said, you know, I didn't know uh, that people were still making these games. You know, whereas right. the people that were making it 
never went away. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was just yeah. just our perception of it. But um, uh, and now they have like these contests and stuff. Or I guess they've had them for a while. But um, so I participated. Uh, I mean, just judging. You know, just playing the games or whatever. And, and I was amazed at the. Um, I, I don't want to say the quality, but let's say the um, uh, the. I mean, some of them were great. Sure. And some are terrible, you know, but uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, there's there's a couple competitions which happen every year. There's the one in the fall, the interactive fiction competition, and there's one called the spring thing, which is actually which is actually coming up. I want to say that um, that on March 31st is the deadline to enter a game for that. I know Adam Thornton has been, he's, he's publicly said that the Stiffy McCain game that he's working on is going to be in that. Um, yeah, it, the thing that impresses me about the fall interactive fiction competition is I get the sense that people, at, you know, they're, maybe they're spending a year working on these things. Um, and they're able to, they're, yeah, they're games which are maybe two hours long, but when you take a look at the, the, the ones that place in the top 10 or the top 15, yeah, the quality is pretty solid. And it does. It's not someone spending their entire life making one either. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. Now, but and all these games, just like all the other ones, are. Um, I mean, they're they're made with free tools, and they're also free to download and play. Um, but I know Andrew Plotkin uh, raised some money through Kickstarter, and he's actually trying to, uh, I guess, start a movement or whatever you want to call it. Uh, or you know, start a way for people to sell text adventures through new platforms. I know he's, I think, targeting the iPhone, but uh, or iOS. But um, I don't. Do you think there's ever going to be a market for selling text adventures? I think in his case there will be because there's the, the appeal of playing the new game from Andrew Plotkin. Mm-hmm. So if um, it's text, I thought text adventures on an iPhone were a little bit tough to play. But that completely went away the first time I saw one on an iPad. Okay. So, yeah, I, th- I think that in his case, I think he's going to do really well because he's going to make cool games that will have an extremely high level of quality. Mm-hmm. And if you're not sure if you're going to like them or not, he's got at least four or five really, really solid uh, wares that you can go through and, um, and, and enjoy and get yourself psyched for the one that he's going to come out with next. Um, I, I, that being said... I think it would be really tough for someone to start out cold using the tools that will eventually become available and try to sell their game on the iPhone. But you know what? Um, uh, there is a uh, there's a uh, a journalist named Stuart Campbell who's done a lot of work on what can happen if you sell your iPhone or iPad program for like 99 cents mm-hmm. and it, it doesn't seem like that's a huge barrier i think there's a lot of people who are like they'll i don't want to say they'll buy anything for 99 cents but um you know with all the all the gameplay you get for um just not a lot of money um man it does seem like that would be a pretty cool platform to go to go sell on like i don't i don't think i would do it myself um only because it seems like we're a long ways off to using hugo uh, on the web or on an iPad device or anything, mm-hmm. um, but I think if you've got like a, if you've got an established brand as much as you can in the realm of, of text adventures, like put it this way: if the guys who make Zork came out with Zork Four and they said it was going to be five bucks on the iPad, I'd probably get an iPad for it. <laughs> right, right. So, 
Yeah. yeah, and well, you know, and we I saw that um, uh, several years ago when uh, Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails said that he was going to uh, sell his music on his website only. Sure. And so the idea was that there would be no more record label. Uh, you go to NineInchNails.com, and his new album is there, and you pay through PayPal, and then you get to download the album. And I thought, that's great if you're Nine Inch Nails, and people know <laughs> NineInchNails.com. You know what I mean? Yeah. But if you're JoeBlow.com, and, you know, how do you get that word out, you know? But the um, that 90 cent or 99 cent price point you mentioned is interesting because there's been a couple of articles over the last week of people who have um I know there's the the one the girl her her uh vampire stories I don't know if you've heard this this news story it's been uh it's you know oh, I have not. caught on but uh, essentially it's a, a story of a 26 year old girl who is cranking out uh, teen uh, you know demographic vampire romance novels Sure. Um, but her her uh, business plan is she sells them only through uh, or on the Kindle, so they're mm-hmm. only sold electronically. And I think it said her well now officially she's a millionaire, uh, and her yeah, books right. cost two ninety nine. Yeah, which brings me to my next point. This is the last podcast, and the next one will be I'm only doing romance vampire <laughs> romance <laughs> podcasts from now on. So. I don't know who my next guest will be. Anybody, that girl, if I can get that girl on the show. You get her to come on, and you get, you get somebody who's just going to say, blah, blah, over and over again, Rob. I think that, yes. She's going to charge me a fortune, though. She's a millionaire. She won't deal with the likes of us. But, um, uh, and, and then there, there's a, there was an article that um, I talked about a little bit on my blog this week that was linked to from Slashdot and Boing Boing and a couple other sites about how... Um, Ebooks are gravitating towards that same price point, that $0.99 cent price point, which, um, you know, initially, I, I almost was kind of, you know, I said that I felt insulted a little bit, uh-huh. and, sure. uh, you know, because, like, um, Commodore, especially, I talk more about that than um, Invading Spaces, but Commodore, you know, it, it wasn't two years worth of work, but it was two mm-hmm. years for it to come together. You know, like as I wrote stuff and then, you know, figured out how I was going to organize it and how I was going to do this and that, you know, and um, uh, invading spaces didn't take that long because it was more intentional, I guess is Mm -hmm. is the right word. Like, like I just said, I'm going to write this, 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 you know, and then um, uh, near the end of invading spaces, I went and rented a lakeside cabin uh, for for a couple of days Basically, because uh, growing up, I loved the movie Funny Farm. I don't know if you okay. ever with uh, Chevy Chase, and he decide he's an uh, an author, and they go rent uh, this farmhouse, and he goes and sits in the attic with his typewriter, and um, he's gonna bang away on his novel, you know. And but oh yeah, I think the, yeah, I think the sh- like The Shining had the same sort of premise. Yeah, exactly. So I'm with you. Yeah, okay, gotcha. Uh, so yeah. so it was that kind of idea of like, well, yeah. I, you know, I need to get this done, and especially. Um, you know, once once you get girlfriends and, and wives and then kids and, and you know, it's hard to, to just go sit down and write for a few hours. So that that was kinda like the the end push. But anyway, the, yeah. the the point I'm getting at is when you when I think about those books, I think about all the uh you know, from getting from the very beginning of a concept to getting the final thing published and to think that that's only worth ninety nine cents to somebody 
that right. that's why I, you know I almost felt offended in a way but um oh yeah totally yeah it's like it's I guess the way to look at it is that it's not worth like no one is saying that that your time or um, you know, the guy who goes and puts out a text adventure on the iPad for 99 cents like no one is really saying that your time is worth 99 cents as much as it is um, people who are only barely in control of their own lives will click on buy because that <laughs> small amount of money. Right, And you'll right. get that money regardless of whether or not they've actually spent any time thinking about it. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's I, I know totally what you mean. It's like I put most of my games out for, for free. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that my time is, well, I'm not saying that my, my time is, is valueless in, in making them or anything. But um, for, for me, it's like more about getting people to play them right right yeah experience them and that, that is the one thing if you and i'm not telling you to but there's this whole thing with how prices got skewed low which like i have a huge problem with on one hand but it, everything i've read says that you do make an, a, an enormous amount of money at 99 cents so while i think that there's something totally wrong with that um it's but i but i i can't quite right well well uh, the, the point of the article and this is where i kind of had my my uh, where I kind of came around, I guess, a little bit, uh, was the point of the article was that in a traditional, and this this has been true for um, music publishing for years, and I'm sure it's it has been for for um, authors as well. I'm I'm just not don't know as much about that, but as far as the the music industry goes, uh, a really good record deal for a performer um, is to get ten cents per song. On each oh, CD yeah. sold, so you know for for every CD that sells you know uh, in Walmart for fifteen or sixteen dollars, if it has ten songs on it, the artist makes a dollar. You know, so yeah. you know if if you um, and and I know that you don't get a hundred percent of the of the money like for something through iTunes, but uh, let's say it's close enough just just for conversation. You know, but if you right. say well, you know if if you can make well you make seventy cents. Uh, off of a 99 cent song that sold on iTunes versus making a dollar off of a CD that sold in a brick and mortar store. It's, it's just not that much. The artist isn't the person that's right. taking the cut. It's, it's the whole middle process. It's the, you know, the, right. the rent, whatever rent Walmart pays and having those trucks ship things across the country and all, all the money that goes into that, you know? So, yeah. um, and for, I mean, if I were selling books for a dollar 99, and making the same amount of profit as I was for a print book, then I guess it's right. not that much. It just, it, I don't know. It just kind of seems insulting that, you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> I it's the impression, you know, but, uh, yeah. I don't know. I think that it may be the way we're going and maybe, you know, with, um, uh, these, uh, text adventures like on phones and stuff like that, you know, maybe we could see mm-hmm. a breakthrough at 99 cent prices or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, Exactly. Have you, did you, have you, um, there is a, uh, there is a program out there called Frots, which will show up in the iStore, um, and I don't know if you, have, did you ever had a chance to download that and, um, I use WinFrots, but I haven't used Frots on the iPhone. Okay. Yeah, the Frots comes with a few, it comes with a few games, um, Frots used to let you access the interactive fiction database, 
and pull out games in real time. Oh, wow. But then, uh, yeah, that, which was awesome. And then right. um, somebody at Apple found out about it <laughs> because people were having fun. They, they, had to, like, they put an end to that quick. And now I, I want to say it came back at one point, but I can't, I can't remember. But regardless, it's, it's easy. Anybody who might be listening to this podcast and has an iPhone or an iPad can transfer files over to their, their device anyway. Um, right. But yeah, the, yeah, so I mean, for us, really, it's not a, it's not a huge thing. But I thought um, the iPad seemed perfect for, for playing a text game. It seemed like you had plenty of room. You had enough uh, buffer of what happened where you could, um, you didn't have to keep everything in your own memory. You did have stuff to refer to. And one thing that I, I'll just throw this out here. I would, I, I would guess that if that does take off, you'll see people um, write less and less for their games mm-hmm. in terms of sentence, like the sentences will be shorter and more compact if, if they're thinking about going on these devices. To fit the format? I mean, the physical yeah. format of the devices, you think? Yeah, just I, w- I would think so, because if I knew in advance that I was going to make something that was going to show up on an iPad, and like at the beginning of Falsia Dawn, there's something like, I don't know, like, like 50 paragraphs or something stupid like that. Mm-hmm. Well, if I was going to write something for a smaller device, I think I might edit myself well beyond what I was currently editing, what I was editing, editing myself back then. Right. For. That might have an interesting shift. So I guess that's kind of a good segue into what do you think the the future of text adventures and interactive fiction holds? I think that you'll see the games... Um, I think it'll be very easy for the games to bend over backwards to help players who have never played text adventures get going with them. Um Aaron Reed posted something to his Facebook page the other day where he, t- he was working on, he's working on a Inform 7 extension. And he typed, get ye flask, which is, um, if you ever saw, there's a, there's a website called Homestar Runner mm-hmm. where they do this sure. very funny bit. Okay, yeah. And so his extension understands the word ye, understands that it's not important, and actually gives you the flask. <laughs> so I think stuff like, stuff like, like that where... We'll see more things that respond to uh, who am I, uh, where am I, you know, direct questions to the parser, because if that's just dropping something in, I think that's it's going to be very easy for people to put in. Yeah. Um, I, I do. I wonder about whether or not people will use graphics. There is um, a project. I think it's called Glimmer for Inform, which is being worked on to uh, help graphics come into play. I haven't I haven't used it myself. Um, I, I just can't say from my experience, it's, it doubles the amount of time you're going to take uh, putting your game together. Mm-hmm. If you're going to have a graphic for every scene, you're going to have a, uh, an actor for every, for every character. Um, but I don't know. In my opinion, I think that kind of makes them approachable to, to some people who might get turned off initially just by the, this big block of text. But I, I, you know what? I kind of think that they're just going to continue how they are now. I think we're going to see... You know, much like jazz, you're going to have a bunch of hardcore enthusiasts who remember the good old days. <laughs> and um, I, at the same time, it's not going to surprise me at all if it, interest in it sort of dies off, like interest in the, in the old Model T um, sort of dried up. Mm-hmm. Like you had people who, couldn't, who were kids when the Model T came out. When they got older, from what I understand, they would go buy Model Ts. But then when their kids grew up, they had no attachment to it whatsoever. Right, right. And, and I think that the, the games industry will do a good job of keeping arcade games around. So even though the, the games themselves will probably live on, I, I do, boy, it's, it's really tough to think that 100 years from now, people will still be playing the same types of adventures they're playing now. I would, I would be surprised yeah. if that's the case. And I know that um, when I first started looking at um, uh, 
putting together a text adventure, one of the reasons I chose Inform as a programming language was because that it was so easy to port or to play online on the web. And I think that's, oh, that's something that, that yeah. they, they have to, um, uh, you know, move to browser-based um, right. just, just to make, um, you know, games less uh, depend, platform-dependent, I guess. You're to- yeah, you're absolutely right. That, that's an excellent point. Being able just to give somebody a, um, a URL, something they can click on and start playing a game is so awesome. And... Yeah, there's just nothing I'm working on which currently does that. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's pretty awesome for everybody else. But that's, you know what? That's when we were talking about what, what language to use. Right. That's why I was like, even though I've, you know, I've, I've probably written more lines of Hugo than anybody else in the world, I, I could not say, yeah, go, go make it in Hugo because, um, you know, hopefully one day we can run Hugo programs over the Internet. But being able to do that in, in Inform, that, that's a great point. And I think that will help keep the genre alive. Um, far beyond what it might normally survive to. Just the fact that it's going to be among the easiest games to play um, going forward. Yeah, that is a great point. Yeah, I kind of forgot about that. Hmm. I'm trying to think um, what else we've got about text adventures. You want to plug your game? Tell me about your game. Okay. Tell the, us about uh, it. All right. The, the name of the game is uh, Crypto Zookeeper, and it's a graphical text game. And the, the idea of the game is, is that you're going to be going around trying to find um, DNA samples of regular animals. And when you get those, you would combine them in order to form uh, animals that you might know of in cryptozoology. So let's say you find a gorilla and a bear, and you take a, you know, a sample of them, combine them together. The game will then produce Bigfoot. And it'll give you a picture of Bigfoot, which is actually me in a, in a Bigfoot costume. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, let's say you get a you know, human DNA and a, and a monkey DNA. Uh, well, there's a cryptid called the, the human Z, which is supposed to... It, now, none of this is science, I, sh- I should say. None, none of this stuff actually exists. But um, there's, you know, some, some crazy yokel and some, um, some town thought he saw, you know, something that he described as a human Z. Um, so... Um, you know, the, the game will let you make one of those. Um, and then you use the cryptids that you create in order to level them up. And sort of it's got an RPG element like that in order to, de- to defeat the protagonist's enemies. Um, it's just it's something that I've been working on a while. And then while all this is going on, hopefully that the game's people will find it funny and that the, the writing will make them laugh. And so uh, how many cryptids are, uh, are in this game? There's... So there's, there's a combi- I, That's a great question. There's, I know the, the combination of how many regular animals and cryptids. Okay. There's over 200 creatures wow. in the game. Some of them you, you fight. Like you go and create Bigfoot, and then you put him in the ring, and he fights a sheep. Uh, so the, the sheep is one of the 200. <laughs> okay. But, yeah, so there's, there's, there's over 200 animals there. And I've, what I've really tried to do is for each um, regular animal, like a fish or a sheep or a dog, I've... Um, if I don't have access to that animal, I've tried to leverage Creative Commons licensed work okay. or pictures like that. But for any of the cryptids, I've tried to do the best I can to like recreate them in real life in, in some form. And if that means like taking a couple pictures that I shot and then going into Photoshop and combining them, then, then that's okay. Um, so, yeah, that would, that would definitely, I could see, add to um, your development time. Yeah. And having to have pictures kind of, of all those yeah, things. It's sucked in some respects because like the fur-bearing trout is one of the most famous 
things of cryptozoology. Uh, oh, I got to make a fur bearing trout. So I've got to go get a fish at one point, and I've got to shave my cats to get enough fur to put on the fish. And I've got to I've got to find some sort of spray glue in order to keep the fur there. Um, the, but the problem is, though, that my, my girlfriend doesn't like the cats with all the fur on them, so she is cutting them at a far greater rate than I can get my act together for the fish because I don't want to keep a whole fish in my, you know, in my house. It's, you know, it's kind of creepy. So it's, it has introduced a few, um, a few fun things, but it's, it's fine. You know, all artists suffer for their work. It's, it's totally okay. Sounds much more detailed than um, my game that I'm wrapping up, which... Um uh, you know the the. <laughs> you know, well, I you, like the idea of Hangar Twenty Two a lot. You I know, think that's great. When you get the and, um, the air knocked out of your sails, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I came up with this idea that it, you're basically you know it's like um, uh, I, I tried to the beginning of the game it tells you the goal is one thing and then halfway through the game you find out the goal is something else. Uh, I mean, the, basically, the the game starts and you're unemployed and you're starving, and so the the whole goal is, um, uh, you know, to get food. And at, during this process, you find out about a job at Hangar 22, which is you know like Hangar 18. Um, sure. And uh, so anyway, then eventually you get a job at at Hangar 22, and and so then the second half of the game takes place there. And and when I say half of a game, I think you could probably play through this thing and you know, half an hour or something like that. It's not a huge scope, you know, yep. a, a huge world or anything like that. But um, uh, then when I was reading the reviews uh, of uh, the, the interactive fiction competition this last fall, and there were a lot of reviews of games. That, first of all, there were some a couple of awful games that really just took place in your house, Sure. you know? And, yeah. and and in the games, all you did was you wandered around the house and get stuff, you know? And so then I'm like, God, this is exactly like my game. You know, so this that must be like the first thing I think people program. Yeah. And so then when I read reviews, people are like, oh, God, it's another one of these where you're in your house. And I'm like, oh, Jesus, you know, this is exactly <laughs> my game. So I tried to, there's some definitely some, uh, you know, little twists. And, and, um, and, I, and the game itself, I think, I think, when people play it, the entertainment won't necessarily come from the difficult. And there are, you know, two or three puzzles. Uh, I mean, and things that you will actually have to, to sit down and figure out, you know, yeah. but, mm-hmm. but um, more than that, it, I think just from the writing, like the, the jokes and the humor and stuff like that, I think that's where more people will, will be entertained than, than I don't think anybody's going to walk away from hangar 22 and, and be talking about the great puzzle where you had to, uh, you know, <laughs> free the alien from the cage using, well, I don't want to give things away, you know, but, but you know sure what I mean? Not. Like, uh, like, ah, oh, boy, that was a, I can't believe he came up with that idea for a, a, a talking GPS in the El Camino, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> uh, there's no really revolutionary, um, the, the GPS, by the way, uh, is one that you've found that someone else has discarded. Okay. And, uh, and the reason they discarded it is because it was a promo, uh, gps that was given away with sir mix-a-lot album so so the gps only talks to you in sir mix-a-lot's voice so you know every time you want to go somewhere it says you know buttermilk biscuits and then you, or it just nice. throws out random um uh <laughs> sir mix-a-lot thing. so if you're not a that, sir mix-a-lot fan i don't think yeah. you'll think it's funny but um that, that could take off you know um adam, adam cadre created something called chocolate checks that's cereal and narcolepsy <laughs> 
a few years later, they came out with chocolate checks. So oh, see, look, so I don't, yeah, I don't know what Sir Mixalock's schedule looks like these days. <laughs> if he's, you know, out touring Boise or something, but you never know, man. Well, you know, right off, right when I was working on this, uh, I mean, right when I first had the idea and I was working on it, it was probably a month later. I heard the um, they released the Star Wars voices for the GPS. There's a, a oh, Darth okay. Vader and a Yoda. So, I mean, the, the technology's there. <laughs> We just need Sir mix lot on board, you know. But, um, yeah, so, you know, every time you try to drive somewhere, it's, you know, baby got back, and then you, you zoom off, you know. So I, I, there's just lots of, of goofy little things like that. So I think people will enjoy the, uh, the, the writing and the humor more so than the, uh, the technical aspects. There's no – I'm not pushing in form to its boundaries, let's just say that. I mean, it's, it's getting through things, you know. Right. But, but that's um, – I know that's – the one really magical thing about text games is that it, um, I think the writing in most commercial games are pretty bad, and I think the process of how they come up with the writing and what people say in games, you, you've got, maybe someone had a great piece of dialogue, but after 15 people looked at it and had to give their two cents, you know, it, it turned out to be pretty bland and, and it turned out to suck. There's not that, there's, you don't really have to go through that in text games. You get more of an opportunity to um, hang out with either the narrator or um, a lot of games are, are written, even if they're in the second person, st- still sort of stylized by the, pro- mm-hmm. the protagonist. Mm, sure. And, and I think that's great. That's one of the things I really like about them a lot. Yeah. I, and I, I think that's going to be something really cool about your, your game as well. It's like he's going to be hanging out with Flack as he, as he tells <laughs> you a story. That's you know, awesome. There's a few times where I've, I kind of, and I, I've seen a lot of other people do this, uh, where they kind of break that third wall, you know? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I mean, like there's one point where... Uh, uh, you're, you're searching through a, a closet of clothes. Uh, you're looking for a particular piece of clothing. And one of the things in there is a, um, uh, a butcher's apron that's covered in blood, you know. So you can take it, and then when you try to put it on, you know, I just wrote a thing and said, you know, this is an apron covered in someone else's blood. Like, why would you want to put this on? Like, right. you know, there's... That, that doesn't even make sense, you know, and it's kind of like a whole thing of berating him, like, you know, you might want to stop playing now and just, <laughs> you know, recheck your priorities, because that's just weird, dude, you know, <laughs> you know, so, there, like yeah. I said, there's a lot of little things like that, and, and it is, like I said, it, it goes back to that, um, I, I remember reading a thing about, I think it was Grand Theft Auto 4, Okay. That cost uh, that, that I don't remember how many people worked on it, but it said it had an overall budget of a hundred million dollars, and it was the most expensive game. And I thought, you know, for one of the people, I'm sure there were thousands of people that worked on it, to just come up with a funny joke and right. throw it in. That's never. I mean, there's going to be so many layers of bureaucracy, and there's so much money invested and in writing on those things to succeed. Yeah, that they can't just get away with some of the things that um, you can get away with. It, uh, you know, a free text oh, adventure. Yeah, totally. yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, there's less writing on it, I guess, but but I think it makes it better. You know, it is the thing I like about them, probably probably the most. Yeah. yeah. So, well, I think we've covered it. I think we've got everything about text adventures. I'm looking forward to playing yours. Um, Likewise, I, you know, I, I'm not I'm not sure. I think. Are you thinking about putting Hangar 22 out just like it's a free game? Are you thinking about maybe throwing it into a competition? Or, uh, like, I'm not even sure if, like, us talking about it, like, I hope that we didn't just ruin your ability to t- put it in the fall comp. No. We, we, okay. I, I, I think, um, you know, for me, it was kind of uh, just something I wanted to do to, yeah. to write one. But, um, 
it's it's a slightly more advanced than a, a hello world effort but that's really you know sure. what i was thinking of is like I, you know after doing this i kind of you know i i realized i had to program the objects how to move things around or whatever and so uh i think if if i were doing something for one of the competitions i don't know that i would do a more serious tone necessarily yeah. you know but it, mm-hmm. it seems a little lighthearted to uh uh not lighthearted, but silly. You know what I mean? <laughs> to, sure, uh, sure, sure, sure. To be yeah. a, a serious thing. But, um, I, you know, after playing some of the the entries in these other uh, competitions, I think that there is a spot for somebody that's a, a good writer that could put together the code and stuff. But um, but you got to be able to do both parts, I think, is important. You know? It's a, yeah, it's a special... Um, uh, I don't know what you want to say, but um, I've heard it described as like you need both halves of your brain working together. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, that going because I know nothing about the brain, so I don't even know. Like if you ask me <laughs> how that how the brain is divided up. Well, the um, I mean, you have to be able. Well, it's like whenever you're writing a book, you know, they say you shouldn't edit when you're writing because it uses each oh, half, okay. you know, at the same time. So. You should, you know, spend an hour writing and then later go back and edit. But it, when you're switching back and forth, I guess it's it's harder to do, you know. But but yeah, you you it, it's definitely a, a hobby that involves, you know, that there's a, a deep technical aspect of the programming where uh, uh, I mean, you have to be able to maybe not anticipate every single thing the player can do, but but uh, you know, if you, if you leave obvious things out. Then yeah. it, it makes it obvious, you know what I mean? I mean, uh... Yeah, I put a bag of blood in uh, Necrotic Drift at the very end, and there's a vampire in the game, and the vampire reacted as bored as an ox on a hill when shown the bag of blood. Right. And I'm like, ah, I, and I didn't know about that until the game came out. I was like, yeah, huh, probably should have done something with that. That would be nice. It's only the one thing in life it craves more than anything else. Why would it react? So, yeah, yeah so... You. But, um, all right, well, I guess, um... I guess this we'll wrap awesome. this up. Yeah, yeah thanks for um, for doing this. I've had a lot of uh, requests to uh, get somebody else involved uh, in the podcast, you know, so I appreciate uh, you taking the time to do this. This is a tremendous amount of fun. If you need me for pickups or anything, actually, I don't even know what that means. But, um, <laughs> you need to say anything over again. I don't know. It sounds like a farmer's daughter joke. <laughs> <laughs> right on. But, awesome. Um, all right. Well, I don't know. Let me look at our uh, our recording here. Okay. All right, we're just over the two-hour mark, so this should be uh, the most epic podcast ever. <laughs> like my hard Very drive cool. is like actually physically getting bigger. It's, blo- <laughs> it's bloating up, so... And that's pretty much how the recording ended. <laughs> so a little bit of a abrupt ending of the interview with Rob Sherwin, but uh, I have to say thank you, thank you to Rob Sherwin for taking the time to uh, sit and yak about text adventures. I know this podcast is probably, I want to say it's almost twice as long as my longest podcast. So uh, I know it's it's um, pretty lengthy and bloated, but I uh, appreciate for those of you that stayed all the way to the end, I appreciate it. Um, a few links I should throw out. Rob Sherwin runs two websites. Uh, the first one is Caltrops, C-A-L-T-R-O-P-S dot com. Uh, so if you want to 
go get uh, news about gaming and go to the forums and be abused, then that's the place to do that. Rob's personal site is joltcountry.com. That's where his blog is, so you can check those two sites out. Also on the um, uh, posting about the podcast, I'll add the links for uh, where you can download Crypto Zookeeper. It's a free download. You can also buy Crypto Zookeeper for, I believe it's $15 from Rob's site. I'll add a link to that. Uh, If you purchase it, you actually get um, two discs in a DVD hard case. Uh, The first disc contains the game, and I believe you get the source code, and the second disc is the soundtrack, the music. There's all kinds of stuff. So uh, if you're a fan of uh, text adventures and want to support support text adventures, the interactive fiction, then that's a great way to do that. I'll also add a link to Inform and all the languages that are used for writing text adventures. Those are all free, so you can download those and maybe write your own adventure. So uh, with that, I'm going to wrap up 115. Don't know why I'll wrap it up. In two hours, I might just talk for three. <laughs> I might just keep going. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I've got um, 116 is going to be all about Mr. Moonpie. For those of you that know who Mr. Moonpie is, That'll be a little special treat for all the old schoolers. If you don't know who Mr. Moonpie is, uh, then you'll definitely want to check out episode 116. And with that, we're going to wrap it up. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening, for tuning in. And I will see you all soon.